I'm Jonathan Bastian. This week on KCRW's Life Examined, life's journey takes us in many directions. Some are wonderful, and others we'd rather forget. But renowned Buddhist teacher and psychologist Tara Brock offers a different perspective. Rather than when it's difficult thinking something bad's happening, it's getting in the way of my life or my spiritual path, actually trusting that whatever arises actually becomes grist, actually can help to cultivate more compassion. And later, how the simplest of acts may be the purest. We're not always so forthcoming with our appreciation, but it makes all the difference in the world. We, we all get insecure. And just to say to somebody, I really appreciate such and such about you. It's really one of the most loving acts we can, we can offer. Acceptance, staying grounded, and trusting our inner goals. The whole hour with Tara Brock ahead on Life Examined. Today, we're going to discuss two of my favorite topics, Buddhism and psychology. Over the past few decades, they've served as an interesting bridge connecting Eastern and Western thought. Buddhism, at its core, is psychological. It puts into focus questions of desire, attachment, and suffering. It also presents us with an honest understanding of our minds, how we spend so much of our time thinking about past and future, and struggle to stay in the present. Harnessing these insights, psychologists and therapists have incorporated Buddhism into the therapy room by teaching mindfulness meditation practices and the power of observing our own thoughts and emotions versus trying to get rid of them. If anyone understands how to incorporate Eastern thinking into a Western world, it's Tara Brock. She holds a PhD in clinical psychology and has spent dozens of years studying Buddhism and meditation. She's currently one of the most sought-after teachers in America. Her books include titles like Radical Acceptance, True Refuge, and most recently, Trusting the Gold. Well, Tara Brock, welcome, and it's such a pleasure to have you on for the full hour of Life Examined. Oh, I'm I'm happy to be with you. I want to talk about uh, some of the the earlier experiences you had in your life. In your new book, you talk about a period of, of unrest and unease, and I and I wonder when you go back and think about the earlier Tara and and questions you were sitting with and where they would eventually take you. What were you referencing in the earlier part of the book? I'd love for you to take us there. Yeah, sure. Well, I'd say the culmination of the earlier Tara and what she was wrestling with was uh, in college, when I was uh, filled with self-doubt. I was in what I call the trance of unworthiness, uh, really um, down on myself for a lot of things. I remember one friend, uh, we went for a hike and she was talking about being her own best friend. And I realized I was so far from that. I mean, the harsh inner critic really had a, had a grip on me. And mm. whether it had to do with you know, my, my weight or my way of doing relationships or as a daughter or a friend, everything. So that was one element, Jonathan, was just kind of being relentlessly down on myself. And another one was I was um, very active in terms of political, social justice, you know, it was very much active. And um, so on on weekends, I go to these meetings and rallies and, and it was, and it was it was pretty intense. I mean, there was a lot of sense of a, a bad other out there, an enemy that we were fighting against. And then I started going to yoga classes, which I was doing on Tuesday nights. And oh my gosh, it was, you know, peaceful and, you know, relaxed and easy. And I remember one particular occasion, and it was in the spring, because I remember walking outside in the fragrance of the fruit trees mm. right after class and stopping And in that pause, realizing that my body and my mind were in the same place at the same time. Mm. And there was a kind of, uh, in that stillness and presence, there was a real joy and a a sense of belonging to everything. And I realized, you know, I want to see the world change. And this is the consciousness that it, it needs to come out of, this quality of caring and connection, not out of a sense of, uh, you know, we have an enemy out there that we need to vanquish. So um, that, between my own war with myself and sensing the futility of trying to 
end social injustice and war with more anger and hatred, yeah. I decided to move into an ashram and a spiritual community and do some really deep inner practice. I, I want to stay with that line. My, my body and my mind were in the same place at the same time. Can you, can you take us there? What, what was that like? Why was that so important? Most of the time, I and most people I know are in a kind of trance where we're li it's a virtual world, you know. Most, if we scan just today and say, where have we been? Most of the time, our awareness is filtered through thoughts. We're living in future or the past. I was preparing to, to do this interview. I was having tech glitches. My mind was, you know, spinning in circles. I wasn't as much, ah, breathe, feel my body, feel what's here. And it's rare when we really get that this is it, this, this very moment, it's all we really have, and that our whole awareness of our body and mind is right here. We're usually fragmented. And when we do come together, when we do arrive fully, there's a sense of um, spaciousness, mm. quietness, stillness, and it's exquisitely tender. Because then I'm even as I'm speaking, I'm feeling it grows in me. And then I just then there's the feeling that you and I and the trees I'm seeing outside are really all part of one, one universe, one awareness, and that's delicious. That's that's a sense of belonging that really brings peace. Hmm. It's interesting that you, you were so so engaged politically, fighting the evils of the world, and then your response was to take an internal journey, not to, you know, run for the Senate or keep fighting and protesting. And although I sense there, there is a protester in your heart when all these things are raging around us, but you, you went to a place of solitude. Can you, can you say more about that? Yeah. And your intuition is completely right on. I, I continue to be very, very active uh, mm -hmm. and engaged in the causes that really are um, very alive for me. And I knew that to serve our world the best, I really needed to be uh, more intimate with my inner life. I needed to be able to embrace the my inner world so that I would be coming from really a place of, of an, a full intelligence and compassion and not reactivity. And you know what I've seen through the years is that, and this is just Marx's you know, social activism in general, is that the activism that is really defined by a sense of hate and anger, um, it just sows the seeds of the very thing it's protesting. In, in the Buddhist tradition they say that Hatred never ceases by hatred, but by love alone is healed. This is the ancient and eternal law. And I've just seen this. I've seen it in individual relationships that it doesn't, there's no evolving and deepening when we are living identified with hate and blame. And so it just felt really important to take the time to become more deeply aware of that. And it has affected me a lot because I, I now it's a regular part of my practice, and I'll this, you know, just is moving into current times, very distressing. It's like I have never seen such a level of distrust uh, and dividedness ever, you know, in our world, and I see it in me all the time, every day, Jonathan. I will to the degree I t let myself and choose to take in news, I'll feel myself creating a bad other. Mm. And then what I'll do, and this is because of the, the practices over the years of mindfulness and compassion and getting in touch with myself, is I'll make what I call a U-turn, which is instead of blaming the bad other, I'll bring the attention back to, okay, so what, what feels so bad inside me? And usually I'll find that underneath my anger and blame 
is uh, fear. I'm afraid for more suffering to be caused by um, these policies or these attitudes or whatever it is I'm upset about. And then if I keep paying attention, underneath the fear is a kind of grieving for, for the pain in our world. And, and embedded in that is care. Mm. And if I can make that transition from an angry blaming of other to that care, then I can go ahead and be completely active. But it's coming from a lot more clarity and it actually has more, I'm more empowered actually. I'm, I'm responding, not reacting. Yeah. There's so much of what you're saying that we could, we could talk about in the present moment, um, in, in the news in the last year. And, and yet I, I, I also want to keep following your journey as a person because um, you would, of course, have become a, a very well-regarded Buddhist teacher and meditation teacher, but you studied clinical psychology, uh, which, is, which is the Western tradition of understanding how we think and why we think. You, you've sat with clients as a therapist, and I... And, I wonder what what drew you towards connecting some of these Western ideas and these Eastern ideas. Well, the draw to both of them is because there's some deep knowing that we have to bring into awareness what we're not aware of, hmm. and they both serve that. And there's a Joseph Campbell has a wonderful image of a circle and it has a line drawn through it. And he says that whatever is below the line is outside of awareness, whatever is above the line is included. And meditation helps to move the line. So mm -hmm. more is in awareness. And so does Western practices of psychotherapy. But they're very they're very synergistic. And not all of them are. There's some some that don't really fit, but Many are, and I found that Buddhist psychology and the Buddhist practices of mindfulness and compassion, being mindful of what's here and deepening that attentiveness to really sense what we might not be paying attention to and holding it with kindness really serves the whole therapy process. And in therapy, having someone else hold a container and help to guide us past the storyline into like what really is the is the nub of what where the wound is mm. is very much you know then becomes the grist for meditation so they they can work together beautifully i've heard you say before that most of us have a hard time letting in love and um you know i i see this on the program i see it in my own work uh sitting with clients as a therapist but i, I wonder if you could go a little bit further with that yeah, it's one of those things that when we start seeing it in ourselves, mm. we start really seeing it. <laughs> you know, so we, start, <laughs> we start realizing, wow, I conceptually know that, you know, Jonathan likes me, you know, and I'm talking about you or talking about my husband, whatever. Sure. I know that conceptually, but can I let in warmth? You know, can I really let it in? And we find that there's actually a armoring that most of us have, because most of us have a, a fear of being seen, a fear of being, we want, we want to be seen, but we're also afraid of it. We're afraid the parts of ourselves we don't like will be seen, and we're afraid we'll get rejected for that. And we don't really trust in a deep way our goodness, that we're lovable. That's the core. And if we don't trust that we're intrinsically lovable, then we don't trust that other people's love is for real, either they don't really get it or they're faking, mm -hmm. you know. And, and it's safer to protect ourselves from that than get hoodwinked, to open up our defenses and let it in and then get that pain of uh, then being rejected, then being found flawed. Mm. Does that resonate for you? It, it does. And the reason I was so kind of interested in that is that I think that one way that that you know people can experience love is is through meditation or through through psychotherapy and in both of those cases there's almost and I've heard you use this word before there's almost a reparenting that happens or or a different sense of 
of letting in through yourself, through another. And I, I, I've always found that to be a very powerful process in either of those two cases. I'm right there with you. Um, I call it spiritual reparenting because if you actually look at what a child, a young child most needs, they need to be seen, mm. they need for others to, to really get them, and they also need to be loved. And if you're seen but not loved, obviously that doesn't work. And if you're loved but not seen, you can't trust the love. And when a very young child is seen and loved, when they have the attentiveness and the responsiveness, that allows for basic trust. That gives them a sense of belonging. But most of us had, at best, imperfect um, parenting. Uh, And whether it was our parents or the society, which with all of its hierarchies and messages of inferiority and badness and standards that it gives us to meet, we grow up not trusting that lovability. And that's really what brought me to you know, titling a book, Trusting the Gold, because I've, I've found for myself, it's almost my go-to mantra now that when I'm really stuck or tangled, when I'm having a hard time, usually built into it, there's some sense that I'm falling short. Hmm. <laughs> and if I can even just say the words, trust the gold, there's some kindness in that reminder that there's there's a goodness underneath that I'm forgetting that I need to trust in. And, and and just the kindness of reminding myself, the kindness comes from the gold. There's there's a beginning of a, a kind of a dissolving of that whole sense of a trance of badness. So back to spiritual reparenting, what meditation does is it helps us trust the goodness. It helps us to trust our intrinsic value. And the way it does it is one, it's sometimes described as the bird with two wings, this practice of waking up with mindfulness and compassion, that one wing sees what's going on, sees as the young child needs, sees who's here, sees the conditioning and sees the goodness. And then the other wing, compassion, really holds whatever it is unconditionally with tenderness. And when we get practice, offering that to ourselves. When we can have anger come up and and mindfully see it's angry, there's anger there, just notice it, name it, this is anger, but not judge it, really just hold it with kindness. We're spiritually reparenting ourselves. We're making room for a natural inner weather system. Mm. We're befriending ourselves. And so that's that's the offering of, of meditation is that we get practice spiritually reparenting ourselves till we really um, can meet the world from a place of really trusting our lovability. Yeah. And in and, and your teachings, I know sometimes you'll ask uh, the, the meditator to find, find some kind of an image or a feeling or an experience in which we feel that, that, that kind of love. And for some, it might be their dog, Right, or it might be it might be the uncle that was kind, or sitting by the waves. There's there's ways to work with this, even if someone has experienced a life of trauma or or of, uh, has experienced a deficit of love. That's exactly right. It's almost even if there's been really no conscious feelings that somebody in the world loves us. Um, we can still find a tendril of where we sense some some energy coming towards us that's benevolent. And as you say, and you said it beautifully, it could be our dog. Uh, it could be being in nature and sensing the, something in the beauty and mystery and wonder of it, that there's some benevolence that we can be held by. So we all can find pathways, but the deal is, we then have to cultivate them mm-hmm. because it's like neuropathways. It's like whatever you practice grows stronger. So if you practice judging yourself, you develop that muscle. But if you practice noticing your judging and then in some way reminding yourself through whatever means works that there's some basic goodness there, you know, that your heart wants to love and be loved, that your your deep aspiration is to know reality, to know truth. I mean, we, we love love. 
We love truth. When we can remember that, it gives us, it softens us. We start sensing, oh, so there's some basic goodness there. And I can say in my own life, one of the ongoing experiments has been, so how do I reconnect with that feeling? Mm. And, and, you know, I can sometimes, if I'm not too far gone, you know, if I'm not totally spiraled down with the, you know, harsh critic, you know, having its hands around my throat, um, I can just call on the kindest, wisest parts of myself and simply put my hand on my heart and just say, it's okay, you know, and, and that, or, you know, tr- trust your goodness or whatever it is, or trust the gold, and that will be a pathway of feeling compassion and coming back. But I found, Jonathan, there are times I am so caught in it, so caught in that confirmed sense of something's wrong with me, mm. <laughs> that I need to reach out to something that feels larger. And I often will imagine and sense a very um, luminous presence that's, that's intimate, that's near me, and that's just bathing me with care. I'll just imagine it. I'll just pretend. And the more I imagine that and have the intention to let it in, something will soften and gradually I'll start sensing that I am that loving presence. I I am the loving presence. That's more true than the stories I've been telling about myself and I'm holding the wounded younger part of myself. So I'm giving that as an example because I think it's an experiment for all of us to find our way back to love. And we've all had what I call severed belonging. We've all had experiences where we've been rejected or betrayed or in some way ignored or hurt. And so we have to bring healing and we have to find the pathways. Yeah, the mind is is so curious in, in that way in which we we cling to the wounds almost uncontrollably the, those are what remain in the memory or you know th- lines like losses loom greater than gains and and i wonder for you as you have spent so much time steeped in buddhist philosophy how you've begun or how how you now understand the workings of the mind and, and why it has been so tricky for, for those of us to, to understand love or to let a sense of peacefulness in? Well, that's a deep question. <laughs> um, you know, because we are very loyal to our suffering. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and yeah. we're very hooked on the stories we have about ourselves. And, you know, we, under, we can understand it through evolutionary science as the negativity bias that, you know, we, from way, way back, like other animals, um, you know, it's for survival that we just fixate on what's going to go wrong. Mm -hmm. And there's so much evidence that if we end this and, and you tell me, you know, five things you really liked about this interview, but one thing that didn't sit well, yeah. you know what I'm going to like chew on, right? <laughs> <You know? laughs> okay, what do I need to improve? What's wrong with me? You know, and, and so oh, that's the way the minds go. We have that negativity bias and it gets more grooved in to the degree that we don't trust ourselves. We had early wounding, then we are more fixated because we're trying to avoid more pain. It's like if I can anticipate mm. what's going to go around or wrong around the corner, if I can remember what's wrong with me and try to fix it, well, then maybe I can, you know, at some point not be rejected. And it's dangerous. It's more dangerous to sit in uncertainty and say, well, you know, maybe I really am okay. That's scarier to people than the certainty of here's what's wrong with me. And there's a lot of science now that shows that we will choose the certainty of very painful stories over the uncertainty of opening to the possibility that we're really okay. Still to come, Tara Brock shares personal stories of physical and emotional turmoil and talks about how even the most seasoned meditation teachers need to return to the basics. And a reminder that if you missed any of our shows, check us out on Apple Podcasts. There you'll see last week's episode on music and its place in our human history. This is Life Examined on KCRW. 
We'll be back after this short break. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. I'm Jonathan Bastian, back with Life Examined on KCRW. We'll now continue with my conversation with Tara Brock. She's a renowned Buddhist meditation teacher and also holds a PhD in clinical psychology. In the first part of our interview, we talked about the cross-section between therapy and meditation and why it's so hard for many to have self-compassion. And as we jump back in now, I wonder if we can reflect on this past year together. You're someone who seeks solitude, but a lot of people, frankly, don't. And we're starting to emerge out of this period of isolation. How do you think our culture has changed or, or not changed as a result of this pandemic? Yeah, I, that's a, a great one, and I, I've been reflecting on it. I think there's never been a time in my lifetime that the uh, a large number of us have been jarred so much that we've been no longer able to rest in certainty. Like, we really are getting it about impermanence. Mm-hmm. We're getting it that we can't count on things being a certain way. And that can either spin people into a deeper sense of fear and offendedness and kind of getting smaller, or it can create some space where we sense, okay, so given that, given that there are, you know, can be stormy seas, you know, what are the, what do I, who, how do I want to be in this world? What's, what's the purpose of this life? What, what's possible? And I think for some people, it has deepened their commitment to waking up, to, I, I call it kind of learning how to find refuge that's a true refuge, because a fa- it's a false refuge to think, okay, if I just earn enough money, or if I just get the right partner, or if I just lose the weight, or if I just in some way protect myself more, that we know that doesn't really work. And so then we go deeper and sense, well, in the face of the realities that we're going to lose people we love, that this very body is going to go, that inevitably there's going to be a systems failure, either in this body or the you know society, how do I want to respond? And then we start opening to a more fully awake, tender, spacious, allowing awareness. And I've seen in my own life, every time I hit a real bout of suffering, you know, whether it's a relationship that goes south, or um, when I hit, I hit one bout of suffering when a teacher who I thought considered my spiritual teacher uh, betrayed me in a way that felt um, really, really wounding. Every time I go through one of those, initially, you know, things fall apart, and in the falling apart, there really is the space for something new to evolve. And that's the way our evolutionary history goes, that when, our, when, our, when a species hits a stuck place, it adapts. So there's like a spiritual adaptation that happened each of those times, Jonathan, that, I, that now I can look back and go, wow, you know, so this, this being just needed to get shooken up with that suffering. And then I went to a place of deeper honoring of my own being, of, of deeper presence, of deeper wakefulness. So it sometimes takes that. So I feel like our world's just gotten shaken up. And yeah. at least for some, it's going to wake up consciousness. Mm. I think for me, and maybe for others that may listen to this, I think there's an importance in hearing someone like you describe, even at this point in your life, that you will have breakdowns, that you will have sufferings. Because I think there's the pedestal of of the meditation teacher and that there's a certain nonstop bliss <laughs> that you would hit at a certain <laughs> point. 
And I, I'd love for you to address that, actually, the idea that people even that have uh, landed where you are are still in a process of learning, of feeling, of making mistakes, of being present with that. Yeah, well, I do want to attest to the fact that I call it going into trance, that uh, I think we all go and I think it's the whole path is forgetting and remembering. Mm. And I think it's we just go into trance, we forget a larger reality. And the difference between me now and when I was 20 is there's really less lag time between forgetting and going, oh yeah, right. (laughs) Breathe, be kind, notice what's going on right here. Sometimes I'll ask myself, well, what am I unwilling to feel? And because when when we're in trance, we're doing whatever we can to not feel what's here. So we find our pathways to come back and there's a little bit of a quicker remembering. But one of my biggest getting stuck in trance experiences a little bit back in time, but but not so far, was, uh, I'm 68 in my 50s, early 50s, I I went in a spiral of sickness and it was going down, down, down. I had no reason to believe I'd get better. Um, it, It has to do with a a genetic condition I have that leads to uh, my connective tissue not really working so well. And so I was, I was, I went from being very athletic and physical and loving being on this earth playing to not being able to walk on an incline. That's how bad Mm. it got. And then at one point I landed up in the hospital. I had to cancel everything. And I really, when I was in the hospital, it was for about a week, I had no idea whether I would be able to go back into regular teaching. It's like my whole life felt like it was being taken away. And so there was, I, I contracted into a lot of fear. And um, I remember being in the hospital and the teaching that had, you know, I found really helpful was just to meet your edge and soften. And in a way, that's another version of spiritual reparenting, Jonathan, because if you think of it, meeting your edge is really seeing clearly what's here, you know, seeing, mindful, and soften is the beginning of compassion. And so that was, that became my practice. I just, every time I'd have thoughts about what I wasn't going to be able to do, and our thoughts blaming myself, because as many people know, when we get sick, something in us thinks it's our fault. Mm -hmm. And so we add to the unpleasantness of sickness, the pain of I'm bad. It's it's called in in the Buddhist tradition, adding the second arrow. The first arrow is I'm afraid or I'm sick or whatever. And the second arrow is I'm bad for this, it's shame. So I was second arrowing myself all over the place. And every time something like that would come up, a self-judgment or a fear about the future, I would just, mentally whisper, meet your edge, soften. And I remember one particular night, and it's barely night because, you know, in a hospital it feels like mm-hmm. it's eternal daytime, but um, I remember saying that to myself, and then the deepest fears came up, the fear of really lo- losing everything that I valued in my life, <laughs> you know, the, everything I liked doing, everything that was meaningful including, you know, I was hoping for grandchildren someday, I wouldn't be able to play with my grandchildren. And I kept saying, meet your edge. And and that fear became so strong that I just had to breathe with it and put my hand on my heart and just keep saying, stay, soften, stay, soften. And it finally, it just kind of cracked open to this very deep place of grieving that I hadn't really let myself go to, of, of just letting myself feel my grief for losing life. And when I opened to it, and really, really opened, met that and softened, right in the heart of that grieving was this tenderness that just loves life. And I let that be as much as it was, and I was left with a sense of that's what I am, this loving of life, this loving presence. And there still were all these different currents of fears and judgments and so on, but they 
they really were not capturing my sense of my identity. There wasn't suffering. Um, so that's just an example of getting caught in the trance, getting reactive, and having to find our way out of it. And that was a more dramatic one, but in a few moments I can go through something like that, yeah. <laughs> you know, where mm-hmm. I get stuck and things seem bad and something in me is like just reminding myself, come back, be with this, hold it with kindness. You know, one of the, as you know, that the tenets in, in so much of psychotherapy is the, is the ability to create what we call a window of tolerance, which is to allow in uh, those feelings or sensations that we find uncomfortable, anxiety or depression. And I, I wonder for you if you could share some thoughts for those that, that have a hard time sitting with those things and, and, and how, how you would understand them from a Buddhist framework. What, what, could you share some ideas on that? Yeah, and I love the phrase window of tolerance. I think that's so useful. What it tells us is that when we're inside our window of tolerance, when it feels really hard, but we can handle it, we don't feel like we're going to be overwhelmed or decimated or flooded or whatever, then we can really get a lot of benefit from meet your edge and soften. from. Right just be with this with mindfulness and hold it with great tenderness. But if we're outside our window of tolerance, and this is really important, which means there's trauma and it's been set off, that's not the practice. And this has been something that in Buddhist circles, um, it's, it's taken some time to get more and more into mainstream Buddhist teaching that those are not times to go for presence, rather those are times we really need to find ways to resource ourselves. And psychotherapy and meditation share practices of resourcing. And by that I mean ways that help us in those moments feel more grounded, feel safer, feel more connected. And it may be as simple as what's called grounding, where we just feel the weight of our body on the earth and feel that hug of gravity, feel the earth, that we belong to the earth and, and actually feel the different parts of our body right here and look out and whatever we're seeing, just name it. Okay, tree. Okay, right here, table. Feel the textures. In other words, bring us very exactly into the present moment in a grounded way, not trying to be with the pain, but just grounding ourselves that this is here, this is now, I don't have to be lost in that. So grounding is one way of resourcing. Uh, we can use our breath uh, in ways of, you know, the, the, one of the most popular is breathe in for five counts and then breathe out for five counts. And it could be four, it could be six, but a, a matched breath has been researched and known to quiet the sympathetic nervous system and to give us much more of a sense of ease and space and comfort. There are other ways too. For some, it's listening to uh, certain music. For another, it might be being with the person that is comforting to them. For many, it's walking on this earth. It's really being in nature that is resourcing, gardening. And in meditation, we teach a lot of different practices that help us with inner resourcing. And a lot of them come down to what you brought up earlier, and that was bringing to mind a person, and it could be a live person, it could be someone that's passed, or it could be your dog, or it could be a spiritual figure, spiritual deity, doesn't matter if you know them or not, but that you really sense um, can bring some comfort to you if you imagine their presence. And I remember the Dalai Lama was once asked a question by a man who was really, really fearful, caught in his trauma, and he said, you know, how should I learn to be with this trauma? And the Buddha, I mean, and uh, Dalai Lama said, just imagine yourself being held in the heart of the Buddha. Mm. So for many people, whatever your path is, whether it's, you know, Jesus or Mohammed or the Buddha or, or whatever, you can call on that or call on the people you know and remind yourself of safety, remind yourself 
that there's love in this world. And that begins to resource us. That begins to give us a little more tolerance for the particular feeling of woundedness that's right here. And then when it does arrive, the thing we've been dreading so long, I think uh, of, of all the important ways that you've uh, kind of assured us that it's okay to sit with these things and to be with them and to change our relationship with them. Can you, can you go on a little bit about that? Yeah. So again, if it feels like too much, the first step is resourcing. And I don't want to make it sound like the first step is you spend five minutes resourcing and then you jump off the cliff into <laughs> your deepest fears, but right. you, it may be five years. But, and it often requires the support of a healer, a therapist, a teacher. But ultimately, we start building our tolerance and we start discovering the more we stay with what we've been running from, the more we start trusting that there is a space of presence and a space of heart that really wakes up that can do it. And, you know, in the Tibetan tradition, I love this, it's called the lion's roar. Mm. And it's that sense of confidence that we really can handle what's here in this life. And, you know, a lot of us are tensing against what's around the corner. There's a chronic sense that, well, in any time now, something's going to crash, you know? Right, right. you know, the refrigerator from the 11th floor is going to hit me. So there's a tension against the future. And when the lion's roar starts emerging, when we've really practiced being with what's here, there's a confidence and a strength and a courage that arises that actually frees us to live our moments, not to skim over them in a defended way. And one of the expressions I love, um, it comes from a, actually from a story about a Tibetan yogi who was working very hard with all the most challenging demons. You know, he was in his mountain cave and, you know, he, he first he tried to, you know, scare them off with the, with the teachings of the Dharma and he tried to sit and focus his mind and that didn't work. And then he gradually started befriending them. And that really worked very well by saying, okay, you're here and I'm here, let's have some tea. Mm. Well, all of them started disappearing because he was befriending them, but one didn't. And this was the deep one. This was the deep wound. And we know this one. It's like, it's that belief that, no, something's really wrong with me. I should be ashamed of myself or that, that sense of real fear that we're going to be abandoned, whatever it is, we have that, that really a core demon. And so he actually upped his game. This is Melarepam talking about the uh, Tibetan yogi. And he went over and put his head in the demon's mouth. And the moment he went to that level of surrender, saying, okay, whatever it is, it is, go ahead, eat me, you know, that demon dissolved. And the, the teaching is that when the resistance is gone, the demons are gone. Mm. And we can train for that. That's the, that's the beauty of the path. As you were telling the story of Milarepa, I just, I, I couldn't help but think of a poem that that you probably know of and is used by, by many folks in, in therapy or, or meditation, which is The Guest House by Rumi, which says that this being human is a guest house, every morning a new arrival, a joy, a depression, a meanness, some momentary awareness comes as an unexpected visitor. Welcome and entertain them all. That always seemed to strike at the heart of so much of the work that can happen in meditation or in psychotherapy or reflecting on what you just said right there. Mm. Thank you for sharing that. You know, the end of that poem says, let them in because each has, is, it says it, I'm just putting sure. in my own words, because each is here as a gift from the beyond. Exactly. And there's something about rather than when it's difficult thinking something bad's happening, it's getting in the way of my life or my spiritual path, actually trusting that whatever arises actually becomes grist, actually can help to cultivate more compassion 
and more awareness. It's like um, Thich Nhat Hanh has this, had this great saying that no mud, no lotus. <laughs> you mm. know? It's like it really is the foundation of waking up. And again, there's lag time. You know, something can happen that's really difficult. And, and after a while, we start sensing, wow, if I can be with this, it is going to be a gift from beyond. It is going to teach me and grow me in a way. And in the Bodhisattva tradition, that's the Buddhist, uh, the awakening of heart, uh, the Bodhisattva is an expression, the archetype of an awakened heart, of being with an awakened heart. One of the deep prayers of the Bodhisattva is, may whatever arises awaken this heart and mind. Mm. And I love that. I, I remember when my husband and I got married, and we were taking our wedding vows, that, that was our shared um, prayer, that whatever came up between us, you know, whatever doubts, mistrust, anger, pettiness, whatever it was, may we find a way that that too serve to deepen intimacy and wake up freedom. Yeah. I, I wonder for you, Tara, when you've reached this point in, in your life as a meditator, as you'll embark on your seventh decade around the sun in the coming years, where your mind is at now with your practice, as I'm sure questions of mortality become more present as the body continues to change, how, how has all this changed your practice and how you approach some of these big questions? Hmm. Well, thank you. I, I, that's a real invitation. Um, the first thing that comes to mind is that I'm every day aware of mortality. Like, it's 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 the backdrop of everything. Uh, my own mortality and that everything's changing. It's like I, it's not exactly being on borrowed time, but really getting the fleetingness and and what that does the more I open into that in a very direct way, and I mean not conceptually, but really feel it, feel the movement of, of, of these lives, actually the more pure my love is. And I, I've come to realize that waking up love is directly correlated to opening to impermanence. Like when I really get that and I'll just bring it present that that you and I may not connect again this lifetime. Mm. Who knows? I'd love to meet you, you know, but we might not. Right. But when I like really sit with that, like let it right these moments come in, you become a part of me. There's a there's a um, yeah, I'm just feeling it in my body. There's a tenderness, there's a connectedness. And that's one of the gifts of aging, that it's just more imminent, you can feel it and um, it makes life more precious. Uh, it also is, you know, really, really tough work in some, at some times. I've got some friends, like many of us, uh, a few very, very close people, who have a disease that looks like it's going to take them, that they're going to pass in the not-distant future. And um, it's, no, it's not like going into some nice spiritual you know, pablum saying, oh, well, this is impermanence, I'm just going to love them more and feel the love. You know, there's like real live grief and there's all the thoughts of, I don't want it this way and so on, but just staying. So just staying with the reality of it is really, so that's a deep part of it, Jonathan, is, is just facing, facing that it's really going, 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 gone. And in the going, going, gone, there's just this in facing what is the changing form, I touch into timelessness, into formlessness. So that's, that's a pathway that has opened up a lot. Another pathway that's opened up a lot is, and this has been growing over the years, is really knowing that the stories in my mind about who I am and who another person is and all the, the sub-stories of higher and lower and right and wrong and judgment and so on, that's really not the truth. That that's not who we are. And that was more conceptual when I was younger, but now seeing 
beyond the story to the reality of a field of relatedness and love and awareness. That's, that is the truth of who we are and the stories are what one of my teachers, Sokni Rinpoche, says, they're real but not true. And by that he means they're real in the sense they come up. We get caught in our stories daily about what we need to do and what's wrong and so on. But that's not the truth of reality. And if we can see that the stories are real and they're happening, but we don't have to believe them. In other words, and I see this for many people when they start meditating, one of the great takeaways is you don't have to believe your beliefs. You really don't. You are not your thoughts. And when we start getting that, and this is what is more true for me now, that those stories are not who we are, there's a huge amount of freedom that opens up and much more creativity and spontaneity and so on, because they take a lot of airspace, those stories. So that would be the second thing I'd name, just seeing the emptiness of, of the stories and freeing that frees up to rest in a much more awake space. Well, Tara Brock, I, I've enjoyed this conversation so much, and I, I wonder if there's any, any last thoughts or, or words that you leave us with as we, as we close out this interview. It's been, it's been really wonderful. Oh, another good invitation. Thank you. Well, you know, I've been talking a lot about trusting our goodness, trusting the intrinsic goodness in ourselves and each other. Um, it really, one of the great gifts we can offer to each other is to mirror that goodness, to let other people know. And we're not always so forthcoming with our appreciation, but it makes all the difference in the world. We, we all get insecure. And just to say to somebody, I really appreciate such and such about you, um, it's really one of the most loving acts we can we can offer, and then and just to notice what happens. So I just invite you to practice not just trusting the gold, but expressing your appreciation for the gold you see in others. Well, Tara Brock, once again, I, I want to thank you again for the time today and for sharing these ideas with me and our listeners on KCRW. Um, I, I really appreciate it. Oh, I, I love being with you. Thank you. Tara Brock is a Buddhist meditation teacher and a clinical psychologist. You can learn more about her work at tarabrock.com. Well, that's all for today. The producer of Life Examined is Andrea Brody. You can listen to this and all other episodes on your favorite podcasting app. I'm Jonathan Bastian. Thanks for joining us. We'll see you next week.